Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder and editor of Blister, and you can check us out online at blisterreview.com. In today's episode, we talk to Ted Ligeti, one of the best giant slalom racers in history. At the 2015 World Championships, Ted became the first skier to win three consecutive World Championship titles in GS. At the age of 21, he became the youngest American male to win an Olympic gold medal in alpine skiing, and he continues to dominate the men's alpine circuit with five World Cup overall GS titles and five World Championship titles. In our conversation, Ted and I talk about his end of January injury, what happened, and what his goals are for next season. We also revisit the question of the current FIS regulation skis, and whether his initial opinions about those skis have softened or grown stronger. We then set the record straight on Ted's background, how and why he was able to go from losing races badly to becoming the best in the world. And we talk about failure and figuring out when to quit versus when to persevere. Finally, we talk about Ted's company, Shred, and why Ted thinks that some of their latest developments are improvements over current technologies. Be sure to check out the show notes to this episode at blisterreview.com. We've put up a lot of videos and links to a number of the races, articles, and products that Ted and I talk about. This episode of the Blister Podcast is brought to you by New Belgium Brewing Company. And this week, Justin, Bob, and I picked up the New Belgium Folly Pack, where you get 12 bottles of five different New Belgium beers. So I'm currently having a Ranger IPA, and J-Bob opted for the Rye PA because he liked the picture of the, quote, turtle wearing an artichoke, which is definitely not what's on the bottle. So my advice to you this weekend is that you go out and get your own folly pack because I guarantee that you can have a heated debate with your friends about what is on the bottle of New Belgium's Rye PA. Okay, now let's get to our conversation with one of the best ski racers in the world, Ted Ligeti. Where in the world are you right now? I'm actually in Park City, Utah right now back home doing rehab and trying to get strong again yep um and uh how's the getting strong going it's coming along actually i think there's something like sort of satisfying about rehab in the sense that like every day you're like making progressive gains and things are getting a little stronger and every day is a little bit better than the last and you get a little bit more more mobility and so it's like satisfying in that sense and I can work hard on the core stuff and on my left leg as well. So um, just been taking advantage of, of this time to be able to, to make those extra steps. Yep. And it's, it's, it's almost, it's like almost exactly around two months, right? Since the injury. Yeah. So I hurt myself, tore my ACL in July 27th and then had surgery February 9th. So I'm uh, seven weeks from surgery. As of yesterday, yeah. Okay. Um, and so far, so good. It sounds like things are kind of on track. Yeah, things are going really well. Um, no real hiccups so far. I mean, it's it's been going so well that, you know, I got to 
keep my expectations in check. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there's going to be some hiccups along the way and some, some little road bumps, <clears throat> but so far it's been smooth sailing. Yeah. So have you spent much time revisiting the day of the accident? I mean, was this just one of those things you're like, dude, you know what? Sometimes it happens and, and things got weird or do you pinpoint uh, something in particular that happened um, on this training run you were on? Well, so ski racing, like ACL injuries is such a common thing and skiing yeah. in general. So it's not like I was breaking new ground and I got injured in some weird way. Yeah. <laughs> like a roadmap. So like, yeah, it's a bummer, but it's, it's so well known on the ways to get back. And I know so many guys who have come back and then had their best seasons afterwards. So I didn't really have that like huge major like depression or letdown yeah. or anything like that. But, um, the actual like mechanism of the fall was kind of weird. So like, and I posted a video on my Instagram and Facebook of, <clears throat> of video and, like the right footed turn before I fall, I like slip out and then, um, and then I'm able to like catch myself and get back in. No problem. Then yeah. that next turn I slip out again, get fully extended and like my tail grabs and kind of throws me around and get thrown into the air. Um, yeah. so I'd hit a rock like the turn before on that edge, just like a little piece hmm. underneath the binding, um, just kind of rolled the edge over and, I didn't really note. I just thought like I made a little mistake in my skiing. That's why I slipped up the turn before, and then I went to go hard again and just fully like slid out from underneath me. And we're riding on such small margins of error that like if something is a little bit off like that, and you're fully committed to hammering as hard as you can onto the outside ski, and that slips out, then it causes problems. So, um, just unlucky, really, in the sense yep. that I hit that little rock and. Um, you know, normally I would have probably just slid out and just gone out of the course, but this just kind of hooked up a little bit funny, different than maybe it normally would have. So, um, just, you know, I see it as bad luck. I'm going I'm to yep. keep leaving that. <clears throat> um, it makes me sick watching that video. And, it, and it's funny because it's, you know, given the whole history of gnarly crashes in skiing, it's not like it's anything particularly gnarly, but I think it's just because I know it's coming. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, 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 I think that that seems about right as I've kind of watched that thing. It just kind of looks like an, an unlucky or, um, you know, you see that moment where things get back seat and then, um, and yeah, you just kind of get spun out. Yeah, I think like most, a lot of times when ski racers hurt themselves, it's a pretty gnarly looking crash and pretty yeah. looking and that's the reason why I think a lot of us like jump to go watch, want to see the video of it because it's spectacular, you know, it's like right. entertaining <clears throat> in a morbid sense. So it's, you know, when you watch, you know, some of the big crashes, like that's a big part of the draw of the sport. And, um, you know, I guess I wish mine was more of a dramatic crash to <laughs> appease that relative badassness of the sport or, um, make it look like my injury is a little bit more badass and, so not super spectacular. I mean, still a tough fall, but yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think in those other sports, like if somebody blows their knee on basketball or something, it's not like that spectacular, but when Axel blew out his knee in, in Kidspiel and he's doing a flip at 70 miles an hour and flying yeah. defense at 90 degree angle, that's a uh, pretty spectacular to watch. Yeah, for sure. Where's, where's the head, what's the headspace like for you, um, in terms of thinking about not, not about getting back on the horse and, and, you know, all that, I, I don't think there's any reason to doubt you'll be just fine in those regards, but 
as you sort of think about, you know, next season, um, are you are you honestly doing the like, hey man, let's just see what happens, or are you starting to, um, you know, what does one say, um, setting the sights pretty specifically um, in terms of the goals or targets? I I mean, so I might be my naive in like thinking that I plan on being a hundred percent ready to race in October when our first race is in Solden end of October. And mm-hmm. my goal is to be a hundred percent ready to go and try to, um, win that race. And, you know, I won there last year and I normally start off the season really well there. So that's the goal is to be ready to win right off, the, off at the start of the season. I mean, like I said before, I mean, if everything, I don't think everything's going to progress perfectly, but I definitely plan on, on being able, being able to be ready by then. I should be skiing, in August, that's that's the first goal right there, and getting getting back on snow and getting the movements back, and just getting comfortable on skis, and then so we'll be in New Zealand there, and then Chile in September, and by September I expect to be fully training and race or training race style, like going 100 percent and, and yep. really charging and, and getting fully prepared there, and I <clears throat> I think with this injury it gives me really two months, two three months extra conditioning, so. My plan is to use those extra that extra time to really um, be in hopefully the best shape of my life. I'm sure, you know, come June or July, I'm going to be pretty tired at the gym and um, <laughs> not being on the mountain bike until probably July is is going to be tough since that's a big part of my at least aerobic conditioning. So yeah. there's going to be some mental hurdles as far as hating the gym in between now and then. But my plan is to to get in you know awesome shape and be ready to ski hard and, and ski well in August and then really push it um, in the race scene come September and be ready to, to really go after it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be, it's going to be fun to watch switching gears a bit, but you obviously, a lot has been made about your technique and, and style. Um, does this mean that you get asked uh, sort of an inordinate amount um, amount of questions from people saying like, hey, you know, what's the single best tip you can give me if I'm not as a racer, but but as a kind of an everyday skier, you know, who loves to do high angle carving, that kind of thing? Do you get one? Do you get asked about this a lot? And then I guess the follow up would be do you actually sort of think there's kind of a first principle? Um, it's like, yep, somebody who's, you know, likes the idea of high angle carving, fast carving. Do you think about these things, whether it's say, you know, flexibility or, or what type of flexibility or technique or strength, um, as you think about these things, or as you are talking to others, do you tend to start with the first principle? Here's the key. If you want to be doing this well at all. Yeah, so I actually do get asked about this. I think like skiing and, and ski racing can be kind of like one of those technical kind of geeky sports in the sense that everybody like wants to figure out that next step and, and getting better and that stuff. So it's, I mean, that's part of the reason it gauges me. And um, so, yeah, I definitely get those questions. And for me, I mean, the most important, I think, fundamental thing is to be driving both shin bones into the front of the boot and mm-hmm. The really the turn starts from the ground up from you know your ankles to your knees to your hips so like if you're starting a turn you got to start you know really pushing on the fronts of the boots and driving the knees in and that allows you to build the forces to start dropping the hip in and then trying to get you know counter with the upper body so you're over the outside ski so you know it's a progression you can't just go in there and start 
slamming your hip to the ground without, you know, being on the front <laughs> of your boots and, yes. and diving the knees and all those things. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's definitely something we work on all the time is the fundamentals and, and working on ingraining those and ingraining those in situations where you wouldn't necessarily be comfortable, you know, resorting to, you know, the basic mechanisms. Do you have any interest in coaching someday? I mean, one, do you have any interest in that? Down the line, whatever. Um, and two, here's a self-assessment question. Do you think you'd be a good coach? So every summer I actually have coached up in Mount Hood. I do a week camp up there. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's it's mostly kids, seven seven years old and up. I mean, we we have some masters racers there as well. We had a 90 year old a couple of years ago in the camp as well. So seven to 90 basically is, was, has been our age <laughs> now, yeah. but generally the average age is probably like the 12, 13 ish age. And, um, I do enjoy that. I don't know if it's something I want to do full time. I always, I think I want to like do it a little bit on, on a piece by piece basis and, and not fully be hundred percent committed, but to kind of um, share some of my knowledge along the way. So, you know, I'll cross that bridge when I get there, but, yeah. um, I don't think that's going to be my, my main focus. Um, you know, I definitely want to keep sharing my knowledge, but, um, I don't know if that's going to be my main focus. A couple years ago, we get these new rules, uh, for new giant slalom skis, right? Moving to a straighter ski, and I, I guess this was around 2013 um, when this was being implemented, and, and you obviously came out extremely strongly on this issue. And I I couldn't at least find too much in the way that kind of the so where are we at now? Um, and I was curious whether you sort of still feel um, if all the opinions uh, you know and concerns sort of hold true today, if you've if you've changed that opinion at all or softened on that opinion, um, what do you think about that these days? Um, my stance actually holds true. Um, mm-hmm. So people don't fully, like, they don't know about it, basically, in most simplest terms, our skis got longer and straighter. So, yep. um, you know, took a step back in, in the evolution. And the idea behind that was to try to limit knee injuries and yada, yada, and they did some research, but it was extremely flawed and didn't really show any conclusions, but they still went ahead with it anyways. And we've seen over the last couple of years, there's been tons of injuries. It's hard to say more or less, but definitely not a major statistical difference. That's for sure. Uh-huh. Um, in the injuries, and there's actually been a major dropout in, in giant slalom, since giant slalom was the most effective of the sports in that younger age group, um, as far as their evolution. So, I think it has been a negative um, for the sport overall, and um, you know I'm definitely for going back to kind of a more middle ground rule or opening it opening up even more. Um, one of the things that the new skis have done have, has has created a bunch more back injuries. I over the last couple of years have had a lot of problems with my back, and a bunch of other racers have had lots of problems with their their backs as well, and. Because the skis don't turn as easily, we're having to do, you know, some upper body torquing to kind of pull them around on a clean radius where on the old skis, you can kind of always be lined up perfectly, you know, up and down on the skis for the most part and um, just have your body lined up in a way where you can take the force, you know, through the spine and, and through your body in a much more linear way. And 
right now, you know, we're taking the same force to our body, but because we're having to do a lot more manual, you know, kind of pull steering around of the ski, we're not in the in a lined up position with our back. So, you know, I have three herniated discs in my back. Hmm. Um, you know, a bunch of my competitors have huge back issues as well. I mean, Felix Norrider, it's been amazing that he's been able to ski the last couple of years because his back has been so messed up. So, um, that's become a prevalent issue. And there's actually talk now of trying to go to, uh, um, 195 length ski, but a 30 meter radius. So the girls are on a 30 meter radius ski, um, but 188. And there's mm-hmm. talk to try to go back to a, a 30 meter radius, which would, I think alleviate a lot of those those back issues, and um, since we haven't seen a real difference knee injury wise, I think that argument's moot for their side to try to say that it's been saving knees. Um, so I think there is a little bit of a movement. I think the ski companies really want to move this way because because they've seen a, the drop in in sales and drop in development of those younger racers, and also on the lower you know club level and, and national team side where. They're seeing the you know the fifteen sixteen year olds that have to ski on the same skis that I do on yep. World Cup have to do the same thing, and they're you know one hundred and twenty five pound kids that aren't really you know fully physically mature, or don't have the skills yet to handle such a such a big ski, and that's mm. showing in world ranks of the younger kids are are a huge drop off relative to years past um, versus the upper upper um, guys. So that's definitely been been very prevalent and i think there is a move to move forward so you know we'll see how it goes i'm i'm pushing for that i don't it's obviously not going to happen next year but there's some talk um of maybe that going through for the olympic year so um it'll be interesting to see how that happens i mean fitz is obviously very stubborn about these kind of things and don't like to doesn't like to admit their wrongs um but i think there might be universal consensus on moving in this new direction to the 30 meter skis. And if it is universal, so far all the athletes I've talked to have, have been universally on board with this and same with the companies. So I think if we have a strong front going, you know, to the fist conference Congress and trying to propose this, I think it should get done. Just out of curiosity. I mean, are you with the back injuries that are, that are prevalent? I mean, on the one hand, you know, it, I, I would think that, God, you guys are, we're talking about such powerful skiers skiing at such high speeds that, I mean, at at that point you think, well, if these guys aren't able to bend this ski or or you'd think they still can bend a a stiff ski, stiff straight ski pretty easily. Are, Are these injuries kind of taken place in the same sort of situation you know, you know what I mean? Like, is it like, well, I don't know. It's just people are having messed up backs or is it like every time we're getting into this particular scenario in training or in a race, this is when we're seeing these incidents come up? Um, I would say, I mean, there's not one single mechanism that happens, but yeah. in, in ski racing, we're like in a hunch or like yeah. steps back position. Um, so our back is rounded and yep. then we're pairing you know, multiple G's of force, you know, <laughs> yep. throughout our body. And so once you add in, you know, flex spine yep. with a little bit of rotation to the outside, like it's a perfect, any doctor, they're like, Oh, don't ever get in that <laughs> thing. Like, yeah, you, know, you go pick up a heavy box of your house. 
It's the worst. Like, yeah. <laughs> not using your legs and then do it off to the side. Like that's how you blow your back out. So yep. that's basically what we're doing. 60 turns in a row. Yeah. GS course, you know? So yeah, that, you know, continuous <laughs> mechanism and like our backs are strong. We do a ton of back work and, yep. you know, we a ton of core work and stabilization and all that stuff. And, you know, if everything is perfect, the snow is perfect, you know, we'll, we'll be fine. But when you add some flat light in there and some icy bumps and all of that stuff where, you know, you can't fully yep. anticipate every little piece there, it throws you off. And, you know, it's just that much force and just pushes those little discs right out, out the edge. So, um, it's just, it's a tough sport. There's always been, you know, back issues and in, in ski racing, but it's definitely become a lot more prevalent the last couple of years. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It, it's just a sustained sort of worst position you can put the back in to then go rage around <laughs> on uneven surfaces. What else needs to happen? Or do you think, is there a way to get more a kind of a groundswell of support for this, uh, a shift back on the skis? Or is it just the right people are banging on the right doors? Um, and now it feels like mostly just a matter of time? I think right now it's, it's moving in the right direction. I mean, skiing in like the national governing bodies and all that stuff it's it's not a democracy so it's not yeah. like you get a bunch of votes and it's how it works <laughs> um yeah you just kind of have to be it's political you got to be lobbying the right right people and i mean that's the frustrating part about all this stuff i mean ski rule changes come as a bargaining chip with where world championships go and all this other stuff it all gets mixed in there in a weird way and they're totally unrelated in a lot of ways, but it kind of all gets smushed in there. So, you know, hopefully with, you know, the ski companies are the biggest, you know, players in the sport in the sense that it doesn't happen. If you have a few, if you have Head and Atomic and Vocal saying they don't want to make race skis anymore, the sport is very much in a, in a bad position, you know? So if you have these major <clears throat> players in, in the sport, you know, saying, hey, like, this is what needs to happen. It's also hard for them to, for Fist to be like, oh, uh, well, you guys don't know what you're talking about, or you're not, like, part of the game. Like, they are, like, the reason the sport exists. So um, I think when when they all come together, that's something they have to listen to. And when the rules yep. change before, they're kind of, they're all against the new rules, but also at the same time, they didn't want to be, like, the responsible party saying, like, oh, no, 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 like, this isn't the thing to this isn't the way to go when, you know, maybe that pushes a little liability on them if they're trying to go against, you know, seemingly the safety story, even though they knew it was bogus. So I think now that, um, the new skis have kind of fleshed themselves out as far as, you know, what the real implications are safety wise. I think now that they can go and kind of flex their muscle and making the right direction there. I remember a couple years ago, this super, super compelling article about you came out in the Times, and I always just, I don't remember the title of it, but I, I, in my head, it's known, I call it the Be Realistic article. And the article, right, made a lot about um, you as a young kid and and people sort of telling you, like, you know, you were saying you had these Olympic aspirations and people are like, yeah, kid, you know, calm it down, be, be realistic about, you know, about your own abilities, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so I always wondered a little bit if this was a bit analogous to the, uh, analogous to the, 
the Michael Jordan backstory, right? Like <clears throat> Jordan getting cut from his allegedly cut from his uh, varsity basketball team in high school. And it's like, well, wait a second. I mean, he was a sophomore and he then went on to dominate on JV as a sophomore. And, you know, it, it, I guess I always wondered like how much of this story actually is true for Ted or how much of this is maybe being slightly embellished or a whole lot of embellished, um, you as this kid who is whatever, there's like clumsy Ted or whatever, whatever the hell we'd say, uh, you know, who eventually sort of figures it out and, and goes on to incredible accomplishments in this discipline. But, um, can can you set is there any record to set straight on this uh about the early early years um i mean so i would say it's accurate in the sense that i wasn't anywhere close to being the best kid for my age so i was on the park sea ski team and i was probably of like 84 is 85 so i'm born 1984 and uh-huh. so 85 is the you're younger than me of that age group i was probably the fourth or fifth fifth best kid on my ski club mm-hmm. so of those two years of the of my year and the year year below me too so I was far from being you know the best one mm-hmm. um you know that said I mean I was like a good skier like you'd watch me ski and be like oh yeah that's like an impressive like little kid ripping around and <laughs> yeah um, like so I was good but I just I wasn't fast and there's was a lot of guys faster and on my ski team there's actually the best kid in the world from from when we were kids and he would just dominate. He'd be me by like eight, nine, 10 seconds in a GS race. And so, um, if anybody knows like the timing of races, I mean, that's massive. It's so huge. I mean, it's like not even really like an attainable, like goal to try to match that. So growing up, I was way out there. I mean, so I made J three JOs. The kid who won was my age and I was 23rd, which doesn't sound bad. But most of the field went out, and I was eight seconds out. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> that like gives you perspective. I was like 80th in the GS, so like I wasn't anywhere close to being in the realm of the top guys. And then, you know, every single year I like started to progress more and more. Um, so like I started winning races when I was like 16. But all the best kids my age were racing a step above me. And then so I just kind of like would, you know, would start winning. A certain level but all my best competition was the level above me and then I'd move up to that level and get hammered for a year and then start doing well there and then mm-hmm. those guys would graduate on so it wasn't really until I was 18 that I really made this big jump from being um you know like a good regional club level kid to being anywhere close nationally I mean I went from being you know way out of it to barely making the U.S. development team and then where I was ranked, like, so I was ranked, like, 300 in the world in GS and Psalm. And then the first, um, we were just training on our own with the development team, like, all the younger guys. And then in the fall, they let us just kind of out of being nice and just because they didn't think any of us young kids were a threat, let us time trial for the World Cup in Park City. And I ended up winning the time trial and started racing World Cup right off the bat and went from being you know, 300 in the world to being 40th in the world in GS and Slalom, pretty much instantaneous. So I went from being kind of, you know, good regionally to okay nationally, like for my age to like being one of the best in the world for my age, kind of like in a flash, um, basically over like a summer. Um, So I think, you know, (laughs) 
I was in high school and I remember a coach, we were racing, we were just training one day in his gnarly conditions and, you know, I was trying to like get better and improve my time and, you know, hammering through it. And he was like, you know what, Ted, you were going to be a great college skier. And I like thinking, I thought in my head, I was like, F you, man. Like, that's not my goal. Like, that's not what I want to be. I don't want to be a good college ski racer. Um, so that was kind of like, I guess a lot of the expectation was that was kind of like, I was going to do the, the college scene, which there's nothing wrong with that, but that yeah. was not my goal. That's not where I wanted to be. And, um, so I just kind of pushed for, and I got a little bit more physically mature and just, you know, it was really, I think one of my be- like greatest skills is that like, I'm good at like self analysis and like mm-hmm. independent thinking and, and trying to think of like the next thing and how to get better and just kind of being realistic with myself as far as trying to get better. And that was kind of what helped me get to that next step is I was willing to, you know, critically, you know, analyze myself and then look at the next guys and try to like figure out how to incorporate the guys that are better, their skill set into, into my skills, I guess. Hmm. So through the, that was a great recap, by the way. Uh, but, but through those days then, I mean, in terms of how this actually played out, you know, in your, in your head, really, I mean, did you always say or see like, I'm making progressions here, I'm making progress. And, and you, like you just said, you're looking forward, doing self-analysis, self-assessment, watching other people, feeling like you were continually able to see where the next gains could be made. Or, or did, were there sometimes like, you're like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, maybe it really is time to like change the dream up. Um, do you know what I mean? Were there those kind of dark nights of the soul or was it always like, I don't really care what other people are saying. Cause I know I can see sort of this continued, uh, this continued progression and this trajectory. I definitely had those struggles without a doubt. I mean, um, yeah, I definitely had a lot of dark times and times where I was, you know, skiing poorly and get super pissed and, you know, I thought I should be better than I, what I was. But I think part of what like gave me that hope was even though, you know, I'd be skiing against guys my age that would, you know, kick my ass, I could watch their video and watch my video and be like, I don't look any yep. worse really. Like I don't yep. like my skiing technique isn't like far off what it should be. And I watch the guys that you know, were kind of closer to me or a little bit ahead of me. I'm like, Oh, I'm a better skier than that. Like they're beating me, but I'm better than them. Like Hmm. in my, just by like watching my skiing and all that. And I like always kind of look back at that analysis in that video and be like, well, I just need to figure out how to go faster. Like I'm clear. (laughs) It's going to, it sounds like kind of arrogant, but I thought to myself, I'm clearly better than these guys that are beating me right now. Like Hmm. I just need to like figure out how to go fast. And so, I kind of always had that hope or that belief that I was better than what I actually was mm-hmm. as far as ranking wise and race wise and just was still, you know, struggling to find out how to go fast with, with the, the technique and the scheme that I had and, and whatnot. This is one of the things that I think is fascinating. And, and really when it comes down to it, I think just in every single individual's life, there is that question of like when to persist and when to quit. And I think this is just a really interesting thing, both when it comes to um, athletic endeavors or athletic uh, pursuits, but also business pursuits, right? 
I mean, on the one hand, it's like every great athlete has shown massive amounts of persistence and perseverance and how to think about that with in the light of a sort of a bit of a new culture, I think, where it's kind of like, no, no, it's cool to quit, you know, be smart and quit and we'll celebrate you. Um, those things seem totally at odds. And I, and I don't have a good way to try to reconcile those things. And so I think it's just, it's kind of been interesting to me to ask different people who at those kind of crux points, why the hell did you stick with this? You know, and obviously results show like you were absolutely a hundred percent right to do it, whether other people thought you should or not. Um, and then the same thing when you're talking about a, you know, a business or a young business, um, why to stick with it, when to quit, why not to quit. Um, I don't know, man, those are, those are just interesting things. And, and, uh, that's why I guess I was curious to hear your story on that. If you were always just like, dude, I'm seeing stuff that if other people don't see it, that's on them and I don't care. Or if there really were those kind of dark nights where you're like, what am I doing here? You know, I think I need, might need to find a new kind of game plan. Um, and does that kind of make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the quitting thing isn't so much like the quitting part. It's like failure, I think should be accepted and, and is accepted. And I think, as a ski racer, you learn a lot about failure. Even if you're the best in the world, I mean, maybe if you're Michaela Schifrin or something, you don't know as much about failure. <laughs> but for most of us, we lose way, way more races and have way, way more failures and successes. So you learn a lot about failure. And I think failure is good to know and, and realize and, and learn from. And I think there's like some rewards in, in failure in the sense. Um, and it kind of gives you that drive to succeed more. And I think that's something I've always, you know, been able to, to brush off the failures and learn from and, and move on. Um, and I think like part of growing up is I was always a tinker. I like, I had some shin guards that, you know, were starting to fall apart and I like took a pair of old boots and melted down some plastic and like basically remolded some shin guards. And then I made some like shin guards out of, uh, out of, uh, sheet metal once and they didn't really work, but I was always like into the whole tinkering thing. So, that was something that in my mind I always wanted to do. I was tinkering with equipment. I still play with all that stuff because that's, you know, the best way to gain an edge. And I think um, kind of like going to the whole business aspect is yes. when I was on, on the ski team, I still had that mindset. And um, myself and one of my um, good friends that was, on, that was on the team with me who was, had gone to school and was working on his engineering degree, we met Carlo, who's my business partner in Shred and SciTech, and he's He's a materials engineer, and he was working making carbon fiber um, composite parts for helicopters and uh, road bikes and um, Formula One cars and all that stuff. And he had made these like prototype carbon fiber shin guards, and we just kind of developed a close relationship with him, like tinkering on making us these custom shin guards that are really cool and badass, and were um, you know hit felt better when you hit the gates, and were mm -hmm. faster through the gates because they you know, grabbed at the gates less and, and all that stuff. And so that was like a cool outlet to like go from, you know, tinkering, making pretty crappy stuff in, in, in the basement, melting down plastic and in my <laughs> ski room and getting, you know, high off the fumes or whatnot <laughs> to like having somebody that knew how to make stuff on a professional level and then being able to like give critiques and try to make it even better from there. So you know, that's like kind of my, where my relationship with Carlos started is we just kind of were 
tinkering with shin guards and arm guards and he was able to kind of make some molds in his in his garage essentially that came they're like airplane quality carbon fiber you know and they're mm. super awesome and with that um he started slide tech and we became good really good friends um through that whole process and we were you know really myself and jimmy and my teammate were really integral and in, you know having the feedback and kind of helping him develop that product in the best possible way and we became really close because you know those conversations were were always interesting and we were interested in a lot of the same things and um he was out in park city after uh after i won the olympics in 2006 and we we're mountain biking and I had been on UVEX in the time, and UVEX is like the quintessential not cool ski racing brand, and was not really psyched on on that whole product, and wasn't really psyched with anything, especially in the ski racing realm. Um, there are all these like kind of techie, dorky stuff, and the stuff that was more free ride oriented wasn't really workable or and whatnot for, for ski racing, and so there wasn't really that a company out there that kind of had the the tech side with the style side. Um, and so I just told him about this idea I had for shred and shred. It was Ted shred is like what a couple of my coaches called me when I was little. So yeah. <laughs> I had the idea for shred and started talking to him about on a mountain bike ride. And, um, he, he had started slide tech a few years before that. So he kind of had the manufacturing wherewithal and know how and had the, had the business, you know, startup ac- acumen and, we kept ch- chatting about that and we decided to, to go for it. So from a mountain bike ride in July to October, we basically had started a company making goggles and um, started from there just kind of peeling away and trying to figure out new ways to make stuff better. And, you know, it started off small, just a couple of models. And, um, you know, as we started going, we could start doing more and more ideas and cool ideas and um, it snowballed up. So that's kind of how we, we started the company. So, um, really based out of that, I thought my need for wanting something that was good for ski racing, but cool for free riding kind of melded the technological and the, in the style side, which there wasn't really anything out there. And I think my generation of skiers, like I had powder skis, um, yeah. you know, when a lot of racers, I think the generation, a couple of generations before me, they're racers and strictly racers and racing had this kind of image of being, you know, kind of, stuck up or um anal and just like not that cool but i think my generation you know some of the best kids in the park growing up were some ski racers you know yep. and evolved into that direction so even it's, it's even more prevalent in the younger generation you know if you look at in the locker room of the park city ski team every single kid has powder skis twin tips and their race skis hmm. and they're out there doing crazy stuff in the park but then going and hammering gates and yep. i think the sport has kind of evolved from being, you know, strictly, you know, arduous <clears throat> racing training and all that stuff to being more of a full rounded ski culture. And I thought there needed to be a brand and encompass that and that kind of celebrated that transformation of the sport and, and celebrated, you know, not just racing as one, but, you know, I went to the winter sports school. I had friends that were snowboarders. I had friends that, you know, are winning X games and skiing and all that stuff. And I wanted to have a brand that could kind of be embraced by both worlds. That was kind of the initial idea for, for shred. Yeah. No, it's super cool. And God, so you guys are about to turn 10 years old. Yeah. It's pretty crazy to think. (laughs) 
yeah, it's it's been it's been fun. It's been a struggle. It's been a learning experience, and it's cool. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, it's not hasn't always been easy. There's definitely been tough times in there, but it's been cool. Like trying to continually think about the evolution of product and yep. trying to think the next best thing. And um, yeah, it's it's been cool. I mean, it's safety something that's really important to me because obviously I want to be able to ski race as long as possible and you know, try to come up with the best things to help prolong that career. So, yep. um, you know, I've been, you know, put a lot of importance on that and being able to kind of brainstorm ideas with, with our engineers and, and come up with ideas and be able to implement them into a product is, is really fun. Do you find that you in like, do you in particular find yourself in your kind of spare moments thinking primarily about a given category of product? Like, are you, are you into, you know, just you find yourself most fascinated by say advancements in optics or in terms of helmet standards or, or how to, how to make a better helmet or body armor stuff. I mean, do you find yourself drawn to one of those particular areas? I'm drawn to all those areas. I mean, different times I like, will have go through an experience where I feel like there's a need for something, let's say like a helmet, like, um, you know, helmets have like come a long ways, but there's also, you know, they haven't come that far. So, I mean, mm-hmm. we've been working on the evolution there. I mean, I've, you know, we have this like awesome proprietary back protector material, Slytek second skin. And it was my idea a few years ago to start, incorporating that into the helmet and we started testing that just kind of to see if it made a difference and how it worked and um in testing we were amazed it like, had a huge difference in um protecting the helmet so kind of co-molding that into the traditional eps liner was a huge improvement there and then all of a sudden we started doing that and people started kind of copying us in that in that area and then um carlo had the idea for you know taking that Slytech second skin material and making it a, a honeycomb sh- cone shape, um, which we can now call our no shock. We have that in back protectors, mm-hmm. but then co-molding it into the liner. So, you know, we've started doing that in the helmet, um, in the slam cap. Um, mm-hmm. And that was, you know, another huge evolution as far as, you know, increasing um, the shock, shock absorption and, you know, dissipating the forces. And then we've even taken that another step further now with, you know, our, our basher and our, um, our basher helmets and our bumper helmets where we're taking it, you know, traditional helmets have been, you know, single hard impact and then they're basically done. Like you shouldn't use a helmet after you take a big spill, but then taking it into multi-impact. So our, our new free ride and, and race helmets coming out this year, um, are all multi-impact and, are, or the basher and the bumper are both multi-impact. So you take a big spill, and oftentimes when you fall, you're not just hitting your head once. You're going to hit it a few times along the yep. way. So we thought that the multi-impact side of it was really important. And then, you know, along the way, we, you know, MIPS has become like such a big marketing ploy, and the idea behind it's good. But then when you think about it in practice, it's taking a half the size of of the padding material that actually is you know, saving yourself from a shock away. So it's taking away, you know, the, the lateral shock force to add two planes of slide, which, you know, you can't design a fall. So it's going to fall along those two planes. Yep. So, 
we have been resistant to kind of go the MIPS way because, you know, it adds a huge cost, but then it, it takes away, Pat, you know, the actual like absorption of the helmet just to have, you know, two planes of rotational um, absorption. And with that, we kind of thought of ideas of how do we, how do we make an idea where we can take, you know, lateral absorption or rotational absorption yep. and make that 360 degrees without taking away, you know, the volume that you need to actually absorb that big shock. So with that, we kind of came up with a bunch of ideas. We ended up coming with a, with a pretty simple idea that works amazingly well. I mean, it's pretty phenomenal in testing. We call that infinite RAA, which is infinite rotational um, acceleration absorption. And, you know, in testing, it's been huge and it doesn't really, doesn't take up any extra space in the helmet. So you keep the same, same volume as far as, you know, your absorption and then adds in, you know, 360 degrees of, of rotational absorption. So that was a huge innovation. These kind of are all just like gradual steps as we see, you know, a problem we're able to, you know, the infinite RAA was the idea behind it was mine, but then Carlo and our engineers were able to take that and make my idea practical and be able to implement it into the product. And I think that's how a lot of our product cycles go is we'll kind of, you know, whether it's me or them coming up with, you know, brainstorms of new ideas and how to innovate. Um, we're able to take, you know, an athlete's idea and, you know, translate that into how you can actually make it into a product. So that's been fun. I mean, it's really cool to be able to like kind of dream these things up and like make a sketch on a piece of paper and write a description. And then, you know, a little while later you get, you come up with a prototype and then a little while later you come up with another prototype and then you come up with a product. So it's, it's cool to really have that evolution in the product line and being able to like, you know, see those dreams and ideas come to fruition. Yeah, for sure. Um, and it, I mean, that sounds huge and, and really cool that you've been, you've been doing this again for, for 10 years now with Carlo, that kind of consistency. And, you know, I, I can, I would have to imagine and assume that that project, uh, or that process of working together year in and year out with someone, um, it, it, it seems like a nice and a pretty effective way to, um, to keep evolving, um, into new products and, and, uh, yeah, it sounds like a cool, sounds like that has been a really cool working relationship. Yeah, it has been neat. I mean, it's, uh, it's really, you know, awesome. You can find a partner and, you know, it has a business acumen and also has the, you know, the engineering ability and we have a great team of engineers. We have six engineers with us as well. So, you know, we have a good team of guys, like guys and girls coming up with, you know, ways to implement these ideas and, and coming up with their own ideas as well. I mean, we have a very free structure in the company in the sense that, you know, any of the engineers can come up with an idea and start, you know, implementing and testing it and um, seeing if it'll work and athletes as well. We take a ton of input from our athletes and, um, you know, it's not all their ideas are good, but oftentimes they are. And when yep. you can take that and, and quickly try to test it out and put it into a product, it's, it's pretty amazing. Well, cool. Well, and we certainly look forward to, to checking out some of those new products, um, ourselves over at blister and, and, uh, putting them up against everything else out there and, and, yeah. uh, seeing what it all looks like. Yeah. Um, so, well, cool. Well, well man, I want to let you get going. Um, but, uh, let's see, we're about to hit April here and you were saying 
hoping to be back on a, a bike in July. Does that seem about the right? Is that what you said earlier in this conversation? Yeah, I mean, so I'll be road biking soon, but, yeah. um, you know, hopefully mountain biking, um, in July ish. And, you know, that's my main passion. I mean, I mean, within the shred still realm, I mean, we do, we've started doing mountain bike stuff as well. And, yeah. um, and that's always a, been a passion of mine. So we've broken into that area and are kind of implementing the same kind of snow technology and ideas into bike helmets, which is, has been fun and expanding our sunglass line into the surf area and protection into BMX and skateboards. So it's been fun to like take these winter products and kind of apply them to sports, you know, myself and my partners and, and all these guys, all the people we work with, uh, you know, bring that passion for those other sports into our products as well. So it's, it's cool to kind of like see that cross mingling of, uh, of the, of the ideas and technology into, into other sports. Well, man, we're going to stay tuned and, um, look forward to, to seeing the evolution of the products. Look forward to seeing you, uh, making your way back to snow and, um, yeah, uh, appreciate the conversation and, uh, much success for these coming months. Uh, uh, it's going to be fun to watch. Thanks. Cool, Ted. All right, man. Well, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Have a good one. All right. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Ted Ligeti for the conversation, to our strikingly handsome audio engineer, who happens to be the second most incomprehensible texter in the world, Justin Bob, and to New Belgium Brewing Company for sponsoring this episode. Go to newbelgium.com to check out all of their current offerings or to see the turtle wearing an artichoke or whatever it is on the cover of their rye PA. Till next week, check us out online at blisterreview.com, and if you haven't already, subscribe to the Blister Podcast in iTunes, and while you're there, we won't be mad if you went to the ratings and reviews sections and left us some nice ratings or reviews. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you next week.